Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A warning, today's episode contains strong language from the beginning. I hate to use the word vision, but I do have a vision. I know exactly what I want. He's one of Europe's most respected and battle-hardened leaders. Short, in both temper and stature, he's used to leading armies of thousands. People still go, what are you doing that for? I eventually, you have to say, honestly, shut the fuck up. You can bleep me if you like. Part of the job is you've got to just stand your ground and say, this is what I want. Fuck off, and that's it. What on earth, you might ask, did Hollywood titan Ridley Scott see in the French Emperor Napoleon? I'd have 300 men, 100 horses, and 11 cameras in the field. I started to think, like Napoleon, that influence can be great, or it can be deadly. At the age of 85, one studio boss says Ridley Scott's productivity is the single best argument for a second Joe Biden term, something we questioned on Monday's episode. Scott has made Gladiator, Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise. His latest offering out today is Napoleon. Should we ignore the sniffiness of historians and French critics? Has Ridley Scott protected the proper blockbuster from what he calls the boring-as-shit superhero movies? And are we entering a new world where the three-hour story of J. Robert Oppenheimer's life and times gets bums on seats, but the latest Marvel offering falls flat? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, Battle of the Blockbusters. Ridley Scott's Napoleon declares war on Marvel movies. This is one of Scott's famous Ridley Grams, these storyboards that he draws for each film that he does. We are in the New York office of the Sunday Times' film critic. He's grabbed a signed drawing off his wall to show me. And they're all immaculate. Normally when like directors do storyboards, it's Gosh. like stick men. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas that is beautifully shaded and detailed. And, exactly, I know. And that's, just, and that's just one per shot that he thinks he's going to be doing. That's one frame from Alien, yeah, of the Nostromo ship. He's very detail-fixated, shall we put it. How did you get your hands on that, dare I ask? I met him in, uh, for a book I was writing. I'm Tom Schoen, film critic of the Sunday Times and author of books about movies. Whereabouts are you? It sounds like I'm talking to you in the middle of Fifth Avenue. <laughs> I'm in Brooklyn. Uh, the traffic is a little bad. 
Tom has been a film critic for 30 years. He has met and interviewed all of Hollywood's top directors. Christopher Nolan, who made Inception and Dark Knight and the rest, even sometimes gives him an early peek at scripts. Tenet I read before he made it, and it's kind of a very tense experience if you read one of his scripts before it's been released because you have to cut a sign away on the dotted line and you're it's very high security and you you sweat a little bit. Tom reviews for the Sunday Times and teaches at New York University studying the blockbuster as art. So I did a book about a kind of history of the summer blockbuster that was just called Blockbuster. That was in 2004 and that was the thing that I interviewed Ridley Scott for. And then most of the books that I've done since then, and then most recently the one with Christopher Nolan, the Nolan Variations, have been about the filmmakers that are pulling off those kind of big tentpole kind of blockbusters, but doing so with their own distinctive style. Yeah, of which Ridley Scott and his latest film, Napoleon, I guess, is a, is a great example of one of those. Take us through what, what does the film actually cover? Because it's not a sort of birth to death film, is it? No, it's not. I need to warn you, the storm is near. The terror is just starting in France. Napoleon is coming. The revolution is underway, and Napoleon sort of is rising up through the ranks. From that, it's this kind of almost vertical ascent before he Mm. becomes emperor. And then finally, he kind of meets his match in Russia. brings his first period of exile on Elbow, the island in the Mediterranean. He escapes from there and then fights Waterloo, and then that's the end of the film. I'm not built like other men. But, you know, it's curious. I mean, the main slant of the drama is his relationship with Josephine. What is your name? Napoleon. Has the course of my life just changed? Napoleon. So it's his, this sort of very stormy, tempestuous marriage that he has is Scott and the screenwriter David Scarpers kind of way into the story. I'd say that it tells the story of that marriage with these sort of battles sort of interspersed. And it sounds like it's got the ingredients of something interesting there, you know, cities being burnt to the ground with a tempestuous relationship. I mean, is it actually any good? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I'd say that the relationship is, you know, the strongest thing. I mean, you'd you'd expect with a Ridley Scott movie that the battle scenes are going to be fantastic. And they kind of are. But because I worked this out the other day, I was like, why were they not quite as gripping as maybe the kind of Game of Thrones battle scenes? And it was yeah. because there was nobody in the thick of the battle that you didn't want to die. There's nobody in the thick of the battle that you don't want to die. What, you feel just everyone's expendable? Yeah, well, there's no character. You're not invested in any particular yes. soldier on the ground who is fighting for his life. What you have is Napoleon's perspective, which is sort of essentially the kind of the, the general dictating the flow of the arms and horses and whatnot. So you're not invested in any particular character. You couldn't, in a way, be more removed from the battle. On the plus side, where he, the film sort of makes huge amounts of ground, is in this kind of understanding of his marriage to Josephine and the peculiar dynamic going on between them. In fact, I've never had it explained better to me, like what that marriage is all about, because essentially he's kind of humiliated by her repeatedly, by her infidelities with this man or this soldier. And you sort of think, well, how on earth is this kind of military genius so reduced to weakness and then at a certain point in the film you sort of realize that the weakness is the point you know like Mm. that this is the one area of his life 
where he can have the luxury of being human and frail and weak. And everything else, he's compelled to go and conquer. <laughs> you know, and you could see that maybe there's almost a kind of an exhaustion that sets in with that. If all you do is conquer, the thing that's going to stand out as the sort of the precious experience is the one relationship where you don't have to do that, where someone else has kind of got you under their thumb. Mm. Her having the upper hand was the whole point. That's why he was interested. And that is a classic Ridley Scott-ism, isn't it? The the formidable woman. Definitely. One of his great sort of assets as a filmmaker, particularly now, I think, has been that he's always been interested in strong female characters going back to, you know, Lieutenant Ripley in Alien, played by Sigourney Weaver. Human. That character was originally, as written on the script, a man. And he sort of just figured, actually, it would be much more interesting if I made this a woman, because everybody's going to expect the man to be the one last standing. So he just flipped the script. So Ripley then becomes the first female character to helm one of those kind of big Hollywood franchises as a result. And then after that, of course, Thelma and Louise. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Maybe not quite as illustrious, but G.I. Jane. I want to see you finish. I'm going to go through with this. G.I. Jane. Why don't they just get it over with? Call her Joan of Arc. And then even recently, Lady Gaga and, you know, House of Gucci. I don't consider myself a particularly ethical person, but I'm fair. I subscribe to unconventional punishments. I mean, these are all very strong, fiery women. Scott has a sort of lot, lot of respect for that. Of course, there are some people who are saying that the film Napoleon, I guess, doesn't offer the best historical insight in, in certain other areas. A bit loose with facts. <laughs> sure. Well, like a lot of filmmakers, when push comes to shove and, you know, you're there trying to tell the story on the screen they'll tell the story that they want, you know. So there was a a historian who, when the first trailer for Napoleon came out, did a sort of takedown of its historical accuracies on TikTok. Very much doubt that. And also Napoleon didn't shoot at the pyramids, and the Battle of the Pyramids, so-called, was not fought at the base of the pyramids. So here we got Napoleon with the cavalry charge, leading the cavalry charge. He never did this. He never did this. But it looks cool. Scott was told about this, and his response was, get a life. <laughs> but you've met him. I mean, that's the kind of thing you'd expect from him, wouldn't you? Definitely. I mean, he's very gruff. He's a slightly scary, you know, guy. He's a short-tempered sort of visionary, you know, like a kind of classic director as dictator. Some might say it sets you up well to be an emperor of France. And that's the, the read across that some people have done, haven't they? With this film in particular, that Ridley Scott, in his, you know, in his much later life, is sort of doing a film about himself. I mean, do you buy that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, well, insofar as I would add that, like, a lot of film directors would see themselves in Napoleon Bonaparte, like, which is yes. why that story has attracted so many of the great film directors, you know, from Abel Gantz to Stanley Kubrick, who famously couldn't bring off his uh, film about Napoleon 
you know, every director is kind of a, a general marshalling an army. And we sort of mentally, or at least I do, place him alongside the Spielbergs and George Lucases of the world. But actually, he is a bit older than them. He is almost like a generation ahead of them. He's 85. He's been going for a long old while. Just explain for us where this film sits in that long life, but also a very broad career as well. Yeah. Well, Scott came out of the world of advertising. He directed a England's favourite advert. We voted on it and we decided it was this Hovis advert that Ridley Scott had directed yes. back in the 60s. Last stop on round would be Omar Pegatis place. Twas like taking bread to the top of the world. So he came out of advertising and he already had a film about the Napoleonic era in release in 1977, The Duelists, which is an excellent film. No apology is accepted, no quarter given. Only death will satisfy honor. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. That came out the same year that Star Wars did. And uh. he told me that he kind of remembered distinctly going into the theater to see Star Wars. And then the battle cruiser comes overhead in that famous opening shot. And he just felt like it just blew the duelists out of the water. And like his, his the career trajectory that he was on, which was essentially like a British director of historical biopics or epics, was just completely upended. And so that's what made him go and make Alien instead. Uh, so that kind of first wave of Spielberg and Lucas blockbusters, Star Wars and Jaws and so on, it pushed him into science fiction, which of course is the genre which we most associate him with, Scott with, mm -hmm. because Alien, Blade Runner. So that conversation with Spielberg and Lucas actually gave us two of the greatest science fiction films that have ever been made. And why is it the case that he's not some unabashed commercial film director, a Jerry Bruckheimer style, Pearl Harbor sort of thing, when his background is being an ad man? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really good question. I mean, in other words, it, that's you're describing in a way his brother, a late brother, Tony Scott. He made Top Gun, of course. I feel the need, the need for speed. I mean, there's a lot of kind of rivalry between those two brothers over the course of the 80s and 90s. Top Gun. And yes, I think Tony Scott is seen as the guy who's plugged into the multiplex a little bit more firmly. And Ridley is much more finessing his lights and his design schemes and is not always connecting with the audiences at the box office. Quite if I'm wrong, but it seems like we're in a patch at the moment of... Ridley Scott's Napoleon, we've had Martin Scorsese with Killers for a Flower Moon, we've had Oppenheimer. Is this that kind of cinema reasserting its dominance where for a long time it seemed like the industry was just trying to stem the bleeding into television? And has the tide turned? Are we at a turning point? Well, I mean, it's, it's continuing to evolve along the lines pre-COVID, right? Which is that big blockbusters on the one hand small independent films down the bottom, and then the middle is just gone. Yeah, in a funny kind of way, Scott has been forced up in budget. You know, like his survival mechanism is to actually, as you say, 
give audiences that kind of historical, epic, wraparound experience that you can only get at the movie theatre. The disadvantage for him is that historical epics are a tough sell. They just are, and yes. people don't see that. That's why Oppenheim was such an amazing surprise that that film did as well as it did. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. The circle that it squared was getting people along to see a historical film. Three. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. And those are the films that have are beginning to leach away into the streamers. So Scott is one of the last, I would say, who's able to command the budget necessary to make these films. And they're not cheap because I think Napoleon was 200 million. And on top of that, they'll be advertising. So it's probably closer to 300 million. Mm. He's the last of that breed, really. Um, Spielberg, he too, in a way, like, I mean, yes, of course, he's his own creature, but Lincoln the film that he made about Abraham Lincoln came very, very close to being an HBO series. In other words, couldn't get the money for this as a movie. Spielberg mm. couldn't get the money to make Lincoln as a movie, so it almost became an HBO series. And so that really tells you something about the way that the industry is moving. So it's, in a way, even more miraculous that Scott is, is, is making movies like Napoleon now. If yeah. all the movies now are about like branded content, well, we have at least heard of Napoleon, right? So it's kind of like Wonka or you know any of these others, yeah. where you know what that'll get curiosity, and so they'll. I can see how that would get made now, as costly as it is, if it's someone like Scott directing. But I don't really see it sort of happening if it wasn't him. And who knows? Maybe in a few years, it simply would be impossible. Coming up, where does cinema go next? That's in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We have had one of the Marvel films tank somewhat. The Marvels, the new release, 
is the had the worst opening of any of them in yeah. the full 20, 30 film run of them. Is that an outlier or do you think that actually a shift is afoot? Yeah, I think that that is significant. The Marvel films are a bit like Trump. You know, like it's kind of like it's going to take it's going to take <laughs> <Then> back. <laughs> it's going to take an off. We've heard a lot about the death of them and they just keep kind of grinding on. You know, I think it'll take an awful lot for them to finally die out. But I mean, it's true that people are exhausted. So there's definitely a kind of sameness around a lot of these kind of superhero movies. It's, you know, if there's a swing back. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a kind of banner year for kind of Oppenheimer's success. Barbie was perhaps a little bit more along the typical lines of like something branded that we already knew, you know, like a brand label we already knew and mm-hmm. had an inbuilt audience and that kind of thing. You know, a lot rides in a way on Napoleon's success. I mean, oh, they're always very risky. You know, you're, there's got a lot of, be a, a lot of holding a breath over the weekend yeah. as we wait and see how well it does. And so if we've got the situation where we've got the summer blockbusters on the one hand, and then we've got the awards season films mm. in the sort of winter beginning of the year which can be very critically well received but i mean has anyone seen the artist since it was in cinemas no i don't think so <laughs> um what is the role of the critic when it comes to the blockbusters then have they just completely peeled away from you and, and have done for years the critic has become and i hate to say this irrelevant nobody mm. reads I don't think a, a film critic to try and work out whether to go see the next Marvel picture. You know, what purpose does the critic have in those circumstances? I would say just kind of corroboration. To have your experience corroborated by someone in a piece of writing can kind of make you feel a bit less mad. I mean, I've sat through enough of those Marvel movies, and I'm not a huge fan, as you can probably tell. And you can begin to feel like you're losing your mind a little bit because everybody's sort of having such fun. So sometimes I, I kind of will seek out a grouch on 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 that film in order to make me feel less alone. So then come the kind of prestige, kind of autumn season that you're talking about. Then maybe critics come back into the fray as as being of importance and directing people's attention to this film and not that. The film festivals have become the new kind of panhandle where everybody panhandles for gold, you know, um, and you find all the. Oscar races starting at those film festivals now and you'll have them kind of handicapped by all the kind of Oscarologists, their chances, their percentages and so on, almost the moment they've met an audience at a festival. You know, I I definitely remember, I'm old enough to remember when sort of the Oscars were kind of largely a surprise. You would find out who won and you'd be like, my God, (laughs) that's how amazing. And now, of course, the surprises have gone out of it, um, Mm. unless they mix up the envelopes. What's it? Well, yeah, quite. What's the what's the future for then for these, the kind of stuff that Christopher Nolan and Ridley Scott and the rest do, and Martin Scorsese does. Mm. Nolan aside, they're they're all getting on. And yeah. do you think as they get later into their career, some of them have got a bit indulgent and a bit too powerful? I, I know I'm glad I'm only speaking to you down the line, and you can't throw something at me. But I thought Oppenheimer was fine, but far too long. I thought Killers for the Flower Moon was fine and far too long. Yeah. They all seemed a bit indulgent. I haven't seen Napoleon, but am I going to find something similar? Mm. That's interesting. I mean, as the big auteur directors have moved over to the streamers, right? And the streamers like Apple and Netflix have money to spend. Yes. Because Napoleon's Apple TV, isn't it? Even though it's in cinemas. Yeah, I know what you're, you're getting at. I mean, I actually think The Flower Moon was great. And I also think Oppenheimer was great. So I don't think there's any kind of too much flab there, but... 
I do think there's a danger of a real Turkey happening. And I don't think that we've seen it yet. Where in a streamer, in order to keep the genius happy, can't say no to a director they really, really want to work with. And that director mm. wants to spend 200 million and it gets done and that tanks. I kind of feel that that is possible. Because there's sort of two schools of thought, isn't there, that a sort of genius can do what they can do, either because they're completely left alone yeah. and flourish with unlimited resource, yeah. or they're buffeted by restrictions and through that come up with something brilliant. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. The filmmakers, particularly like Nolan, will work really well when they get to kind of bounce off the walls, if you like. They know what the limits yeah. are, and then they either try to push it, deconstruct it, subvert it, whatever they do, but they've got to have that system and they've got to have that resistance, and they've got to have people saying no all the time. And mm. there's a real danger, nobody says no to them anymore. You could say that, you know, it's all these sort of old blokes who've been doing it for ages, hogging all the money. But with the case of Barbie, you had a director like Greta Gerwig, who hadn't made mm -hmm. a huge film, had been doing things like Little Women and Lady Bird. So small films, all of a sudden getting the money, and is now what, the first female director to have a film grossing a billion dollars? Yeah. So the gates are opening in certain places to sort of try out these people with that kind of mad money. Yeah. I mean, it was quite enlightened of them to, A, appoint Greta Gerwig to that job, and then, B, stick with her and back her up. Because it wasn't like Mattel didn't have their slightly kind of nervous, sweaty production <laughs> discussions, like... Does the Mattel executive have to die? You know, like all this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she definitely had to weather the storm. And it's definitely a very good stab at a movie that could and should have been terrible. But they backed her. It takes studios to be quite enlightened and quite brave in their picks. They don't have control of it. And it's their mm. money. To end where we started with Ridley Scott... As mentioned, he's getting on a bit, and yet it seems like he's more productive than ever. And um, mm -hmm. because the strike, the actor's strike has ended, he's back filming Gladiator 2 mm. with Paul Mescal. Mm -hmm. As a final thought, how do we feel about that? Well, as long as you're not Russell Crowe, I think you're probably happy. I'm not quite sure why they thought not to include the Russell Crowe character, but you can't prejudge it. And Paul Mescal is a fantastic talent and actor. And uh, Ridley Scott is a very uh, youthful 86, but yeah, let's see who's coming up through the ranks. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Sunday Times film critic Tom Schoen. If you are a Times Plus subscriber, you can get yourself two-for-one tickets at Everyman Cinemas every Wednesday. We'll put a link with more details in the description of this episode. The producer today was James Shield, the executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is our email should you ever want to get in touch. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed this thing. Amazing what you can bullshit as you go along there. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. 
flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.